Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Good afternoon. This is Dr. James Puffer, and we're going to talk about wrist injuries today, specifically injuries that occur when one falls on an outstretched hand. Our learning objectives for this podcast are going to be the following. First, uh, we're going to appreciate the mechanisms of injury related to falling on an outstretched hand. Secondly, to develop an appropriate differential diagnosis for these injuries. And finally, to understand appropriate treatment and referral strategies. Let's start off with a typical case. A 22-year-old male falls from his skateboard, landing on his outstretched hand, and experiences immediate pain in his wrist. He ices the wrist, but because of persistent pain and swelling, he visits your office the next day. Physical examination reveals a swollen wrist with range of motion limited by pain. He has palpable tenors at the scaphalunate interval and a positive Watson test. The injury encountered in this case is typically referred to as a fall on an outstretched hand injury or FOOSH capital F-O-O-S-H injury for short. Frequently, this type of injury is misdiagnosed as a wrist sprain. However, a complete understanding of the mechanism of injury will lead the astute clinician to a differential diagnosis, which underscores the potential serious nature of these injuries. 40 years ago, Mayfield described two distinct ways in which forces are transmitted through the wrist when one falls on an outstretched hand with the wrist in a position of hyperextension, ulnar deviation, and pronation. In the first, force is transmitted from the radial side of the wrist between the scaphoid and the lunate. Depending upon the amount of force, the entry can be limited to the scapholunate interval, or, if greater, can travel circumferentially around the lunate, injuring or disrupting the capital lunate, lunotriquetral, and radiocarpal ligamentous structures in a sequential fashion, depending upon the degree of force that has been transmitted. Alternatively, force can initially be transmitted across the scaphoid, fracturing it, and again, depending upon the amount of force, travel circumferentially around the lunate, injuring structures as just described. Given these two possible mechanisms of injury, we can formulate a differential diagnosis which takes into consideration the following possible injuries. One, scaphalunate dissociation. Two, scaphoid fracture. Three, perilunate dislocation. Four, transcaphoid perilunate dislocation. Or five, lunate dislocation. As one might surmise, as the force transmitted through the wrist becomes greater, we move further down this list of potential injuries. While an understanding of the mechanisms of injury will help us appreciate the potential injuries that might occur 
with a typical Fuchs injury, a careful physical examination, and prudent use of diagnostic imaging modalities will help us make a correct diagnosis. Let's start off by talking about scaphalunate dissociation. In this injury, physical examination will reveal modest swelling of the radial side of the wrist and exquisite tenderness at the space or interval between the scaphoid and lunate. A positive Watson test may also be elicited. The Watson test is performed by the examiner grasping the wrist with his or her thumb over the scaphoid tubercle on the palmar side of the wrist. This prevents the scaphoid from assuming its vertical position when the wrist is placed in radial deviation. With the wrist slightly extended, the examiner then moves the wrist from ulnar to radial deviation. If the test is positive, the examiner will feel a significant clunk and the patient will experience pain. Routine wrist radiographs, which should include an AP lateral and 45 degree oblique view, should be obtained and may be may demonstrate a Terry Thomas sign created by a gap between the scaphoid and the lunate and or a signet ring sign created by the volar rotation of the scaphoid so that it is viewed end on giving the appearance of a signet ring on the AP radiograph. Subtle gapping between the scaphoid and lunate can be accentuated by obtaining a clenched fist view of the hand if necessary to confirm the diagnosis. Once the diagnosis is confirmed, patients with this injury should be referred to a hand surgeon for surgical management. Let's next look at scaphoid fractures. A scaphoid fracture will typically present with swelling, but without ecchymosis or gross deformity. Pain can be elicited with wrist circumduction. Pain can also be palpated in the anatomical snuff box dorsally and at the scaphoid tub tubercle volarly. A scaphoid compression test will be positive when pain is reproduced by axial loading of the thumb metacarpal. The clinician should obtain routine radiographs of the wrist as well as a scaphoid view with the wrist in 30 degrees of extension and 20 degrees of ulnar deviation. The lateral view is the best view to demonstrate a fracture. However, appreciate that a fracture may not be demonstrated radiographically even if present. Two options exist when a scaphoid fracture is suspected, but the radiographs fail to confirm it. The first is to immobilize the wrist in a short arm cast with repeat radiographs in 14 days. The second is to obtain an MRI of the wrist, which is highly sensitive in detecting this fracture. The latter option is favored when evaluating athletes to allow them to return to play if the study is negative. Non-displaced fractures of the scaphoid waist can be managed with a short arm cast. The thumb need not be included as recent evidence demonstrates they will heal just as readily without a thumb spica cast. Athletes with non-displaced waist fractures are typically managed surgically to allow earlier return to play. Significantly displaced fractures Oblique fractures and proximal full pole fractures should all be referred to a hand surgeon for definitive surgical management. Let's now turn our attention to perilunate dislocations. Perilunate dislocations will present with mild to moderate swelling and may demonstrate a mild dinner fork deformity. Wrist movement is limited to pain 
as is the physical examination. Routine wrist radiographs will best demonstrate this injury on the lateral view with the lunate remaining in its place within the concavity of the distal radius and the surrounding carpal is displaced dorsally. Once the diagnosis is confirmed, the dislocation should be reduced and immobilized. The patient should then be referred to a hand surgeon for definitive surgical management. Transcaphoid perilunate dislocations are very similar to a perilunate dislocation uh, in that they present similarly as described previously. The major difference is that scaphoid has been fractured to initiate this injury, and this can be visualized on the radiographs. After reduction and immobilization, these injuries are referred to a hand surgeon for definitive surgical management as well. Finally, let's discuss lunate dislocations. This injury will present with swelling, swelling and limited range of motion on examination. The physical examination uh, will also sometimes demonstrate the lunate uh, to be palpable in the displaced position on the volar aspect of the wrist. Attention should be paid to the median nerve, which may be, trans uh, which may be traumatized as a result of this injury. Its sensory and motor function should be assessed. Routine wrist radiographs will demonstrate this injury. The lunate will have been dislocated volarly from its articulations with the surrounding carpal bones and its articulation with the distal radius, almost as if it has been squeezed out like a wet watermelon seed between the thumb and index finger. After reduction and immobilization, this injury should be referred to a hand surgeon for definitive surgical management as well. In summary, Injuries resulting from a fall on an outstretched hand should never be dismissed simply as a sprain. Understanding the mechanisms of injury will lead to the development of a comprehensive differential diagnosis, and physical examination and diagnostic imaging will lead to a correct diagnosis that can be managed appropriately. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.